G'day mate, Forty here. So back in, in 2010, in February 21, 2010, I heard the UCLA psychiatrist, Dr. Stephen Marmer, a close friend with Dennis Prager, give a, a great analogy about life. He called it the, the spiral staircase of life. And he made the point, we work and we rework all the main challenges of development. Every time we do it, we can add to our happiness and we can reduce our unhappiness because we get another shot at working at a problem that has come up in the past and will come up again in the future because no problem is ever solved 100%. So imagine you are climbing a spiral staircase in the tower and at each vista, there's a window and you get to see the fields from a different window of this spiral staircase. So there are four basic developmental challenges. Dependency, mastery, grandiosity, and feeling small in a big world. And you will face these challenges over and over again. You never get to graduate from these challenges. I've never forgotten this analogy. Right? We will experience these windows one way in childhood, another way in adolescence, another way in early adulthood, and another way in our geriatric phase. So when you're feeling dependent, remember when you had mastery. When you're feeling grandiose, remember when you were feeling small in a big world. It's a recipe for balance and for not feeling overwhelmed by any of these four stages because each one of them modifies the other and you never get to graduate from any of them. Like right now, I could have a seizure, I could have a stroke, I could have a heart attack, I could get a, you know, a pounding at the, the door, someone could you know walk in, I could get a very important phone call, like anything could happen. And so I could go right now, I might be feeling mastery, but then I might get a, a devastating text and I might start feeling small in a, in a big world I, you know, some bad things might happen to me and I might get into a dependency cycle or I, I start doing a really good show, I think, and then I, I'm feeling grandiosity and then I get humiliated. So I go back to feeling dependency and feeling small in a big world. So we never get to graduate from any of these phases. I was just listening to the latest edition of a favorite podcast of mine, If Books Could Kill, and they're talking about the subtle art of not giving a F, right? That book. And uh, they have a great little discussion here about what is a grifter. So I'm going to ask you a question. I'll give you a minute. Okay. In your view, Michael, what is a grifter? Oh, this is something that has become a more commonly used term. And yeah. like all commonly used terms, I think has taken on like a kind of muddy definition. But yeah. I think of it as someone who like knows that they are scamming you uh -huh. and are scamming you. Yeah, I think that you're onto something there. I think there's a, there needs to be a bad faith element. Yeah, so I heard the term grifter just thrown around a tremendous lot over, what, the last, uh, say, four years. And I would like to think I virtually never use it as a put down because it's so slippery in its meaning. But yeah, I think there's a, an important bad faith element that there that people are deliberately conning people. So someone like Neil Strauss, right? He wrote the book, The Game, and then he sold an information product based on that. And he could have just kept going on and on and on with various iterations of the game and made a ton more money. But he didn't want to do that because fundamentally, Neil Strauss, to the best of my knowledge about him, he's not a grifter, right? He could have made millions more dollars just reiterating the game. And he chose not to. He chose to go in, in very different directions. Dennis Prager. All right. He is not primarily motivated by money. He's not uh, trying to you know, operate in, in bad faith to, to con people. So I think the word grifter is overused. And right. I think maybe a simple way to define it is someone who aggressively monetizes themselves in a way that undermines the authenticity of what they're doing. Right. Ooh. So it seems like the true goal is the money rather than 
whatever they say it is. So right. Mark Manson was a blogger, like I said, right? Mm -hmm. He publishes a dating book, one of thousands on mm -hmm. the market. Mm -hmm. He keeps blogging, writes a popular post, spins that into a book deal for this book. Mm -hmm. The book is a hit. He, and from there, he just sort of keeps it going in various ways. He puts out another book in 2019 called Everything is Fucked. Okay. He co-writes Will Smith's memoir in 2021. Okay. That's actually the most respectable thing he's done so far. I feel like ghostwriting is a real art. He sells monthly subscription content on his website where you get okay. access to like articles and his ebooks, okay. video courses. He posts videos on YouTube. In okay. some of which is just him summarizing his own content, a lot of which is him summarizing his own content. Mm. He recently launched a podcast. Just this year, he put out the subtle art of not giving a fuck movie, oh, which God. I watched 10 minutes of last night before <laughs> I realized I hadn't watched this week's Survivor. And I was like, no. <laughs> you tried. You tried and you made it 10 minutes. <laughs> From what I could gather, it was him doing loose narration over like stock footage okay it, uh, i did not it, i couldn't do it I was like, no. i've always wanted a sequel to koyana's katsi that's mostly complaints about internet commenters and college sophomores you know I, I said right up top that he rambles yeah and the result is like a bunch of different ideas that just don't fully mesh the latter section where he's talking about how like you need to be aware of your own mortality mm -hmm. it's just him sort of going on about death and its meaning and like what it means for how we should live our lives and he says the only way to be comfortable with death is to understand and see yourself as something bigger than yourself, to choose values that stretch beyond serving yourself, that are simple and immediate and controllable and tolerant of the chaotic world around you. Yeah, that, that sounds like uh, pretty good advice. All right. Uh, for me, the, the primary source of energy and motivation and strength and the best, the best defense against inflation or bad times or earthquakes or unemployment is connection with other people, connection to a cause uh, greater than yourself. So it looks like we will probably start getting uh, hostages released tomorrow. So I have a strong in-group Jewish identity through my conversion to Orthodox Judaism. And so for me, all these posters of uh, Israeli hostages taken to, to Gaza, these are sacred objects. And I understand for people who are not on board with Israel that these are uh, competing victim stories, competing you know hero systems that that clash with with one's own. So I, I recognize why many people would want to tear down such posters. I, I don't think they're terrible people for doing so, because it's it's essential to having a good life and an energetic life and a life that works and a life that is not miserable to be connected to other people to play a valuable role in other people's lives. This is the basic root of all happiness. He sort of has this very atomized presentation, and then all of a sudden he, like, pivots into being like, well, you're part of something bigger. You need to have values that reflect that. Mm -hmm. But the bulk of the book is talking about taking responsibility and facing adversity. It's all very, very individualistic. There's right. nothing that really goes into any depth about building community, developing connections with other people. Right. So I really do feel like this is just a 30-something rambling. And, like, so these right. sort of different tangents come out. Okay, but a uh, little later here, they make the point that that uh, self-help books meet a genuine need. And they read it again a few years later and were like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. <laughs> and I think a Yeah, so often people read a self-help book and it just changes their life or they meet a, a, a guru and it changes their life and then they graduate. People declare themselves experts, entrepreneurs, inventors, innovators, mavericks, and coaches without any real-life experience. Oh, it's one book. One book, baby. He's telling you the grip that he's doing. <laughs> How do you write that? How do you write that, dude? You're a, a finance dropout 
who right. started blogging and you're talking shit about people without real life experience. Yeah, 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 this yeah. can't be fucking real. Look, people are going to use curse words to make themselves seem edgy <laughs> while actually repackaging reactionary bog standard <laughs> advice for you and selling it back to you. Can you believe it? Can you believe <laughs> that there are people doing that? They're going to use an aggressively folksy tone with you. One thing I read when I saw people chatting about this on like Reddit was someone saying that they read this book a few years ago and they thought it was so insightful and helped, helped them a lot. And they read it again a few years later and were like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. <laughs> and I think a lot of self-help is like that, where it's just getting people at a time when they need advice more than yeah. they need any specific advice and are using advice. It's like the feeling that you're receiving advice is itself therapeutic. Right. And so a right. lot of people, I think, are just at like a you know crossroads in their life for whatever reason. They read a book like this and they come away with like a good impression because they just needed to be like talked to. But this is also why... I have like basically no contempt for people who read and enjoy these books, but mm -hmm. bottomless contempt for the authors because right. like, they're fulfilling a real emotional need for people. And sometimes you just need a little pep talk. Absolutely. Like, I think that's totally fine. And I think yeah. honestly, there's, there's ways of writing these books that are like not that shitty. And like, I get that they're in an individualistic frame and they never cover structural solutions, et cetera. And like the sort of limitations of the genre are kind of inherently baked into these books and that's fine. But there's like a responsible way to do this tell people like you're not a piece of shit and like you mm -hmm. can do stuff and like everything's gonna turn out okay i think fulfilling that emotional need is totally fine yeah and even like in this book it sounds like the actual core advice is like set a goal and like try to work through adversity and it might be hard sometimes right. and like that's that's like at the bottom of it pretty reasonable advice the problem is is when you then package it with this this weird worldview stuff mm -hmm. and this weird like wow kids have like too much participation trophies and stuff that is basically misinformation yeah. or a way of looking at the world where it's like you're not just getting this pep talk you're getting a pep talk that makes you think that it requires you to like step on other people or that like yeah some uh, good good uh, critiques there of self-help books recognizing that they meet a need and at times we all feel dependent at times we all feel small in, in a big world and uh, a, a guru a live streamer a, a self-help book a good podcast can come along and meet a vital need all right let's get uh, some john mearsheimer's perspective just released a few hours ago will russia and china intervene in gaza that it, uh, it's an opportunity for the chinese to make diplomatic hay uh, the Chinese have been basically arguing that the United States is principally responsible for the disaster in Gaza because the United States assumed almost full responsibility uh, for creating a two-state solution, and it failed. It failed miserably, and the end result is that we have this conflict. So the United States is to blame. And furthermore, if you look at how the United States is behaving since the conflict broke out, it's joined at the hip with the Israelis, and therefore it is guilty for what uh, sorts of crimes the Israelis are creating uh, in uh, Gaza. So the United States is the bad guy in the Chinese story. And this is a story that resonates all around the global south. And Mishima made a great point the other day that uh, the number of civilian deaths in Gaza, however you calculate them, far outweighs in a month, right? Far outweighs the number of civilian deaths in the entire Russia invades Ukraine saga. So if that's true, and I, I believe it is, uh, that's... That's kind of breathtaking because we, we've heard a lot about Russia massacring Ukrainian civilians and raping and pillaging and the, the massive loss of civilian life in Ukraine. But if it's true that there are more civilian dead in Gaza than in the entire Russia invades Ukraine story, that doesn't make Israel the bad guys and Russia the good guys. All right, Gaza is a different situation that's much more densely populated, but it does put the, the Western preoccupation with Russian violations of civil rights and human rights into, I think, much needed perspective.
right? Any nation that is battling for its survival is not going to hesitate at attacking hospitals or churches or mosques or anyone that it thinks threatens its survival. Any living thing reacts very badly to anything else that threatens its survival. So for Russia, Ukraine becoming a de facto part of NATO effectively threatened Russia's sense of survival. For Israel, right, the Hamas attacks threatened its sense of survival, so that Israel had to evacuate at least 100,000 of its citizens away from southern Israel and northern Israel. Right? So a large part of the reason that Israel doesn't abide by Western norms is the same reason that many Western nations don't abide by Western norms when they're in a battle for their own survival. Right? When the U.S. went to war in Iraq and Afghanistan, it was not fighting for its national survival, so it could be much more selective about its targets, and it could be much more careful about civilian casualties. When you're fighting for your survival, you don't hesitate nearly as much to go into churches or mosques or uh, hospitals, and uh, you, you do whatever you need to do if you believe you're engaged in a war for your own survival. So it's a very dangerous thing to back people into a corner so that they feel like they're fighting for their own survival. Even in large chunks of the Western world, it's a very powerful story that the Chinese are telling. So diplomatically, it's mana from heaven for them. And for us, it's a disaster. I mean, the situation gets worse by the week for us. Here's um, Matt Miller, Cut 5, uh, Chris, who's a spokesperson for the State Department, uh, waxing eloquently about China. I want you, I want your thoughts on this, but I, I invite you to the last phrase that he uses, which is almost laughable the indispensability of the United States. But here he is. We would welcome China playing a constructive role uh, in the Middle East. The secretary has, has made this clear personally in his conversations with Wang Yi. I called Wang Yi on our first trip to the Middle East and said if there's anything they can do to prevent the conflict from widening in terms of using the lines of communications that they have available to countries in the Middle East, we would welcome that. He followed up on that conversation with Wang Yi is here and had a very productive conversation about it. Uh, the, to the larger question, though, I would say one of the things that we heard repeatedly from every party with which we engaged on our last trip was the indispensability of the United States. I mean, that can't be serious that other countries have said to his boss, Secretary Blinken, that the United States is indispensable. That's a myth from George W. Bush to, uh, to, to Joe Biden and maybe even before George W. I think Madeleine Albright is the person who made that phrase famous. Oh, there you go. There you and go. President Biden has recently repeated it. Uh, it's, uh, it's a phrase that enrages the Chinese and it enrages the Russians. And the last time I looked at a map, both of those countries are in Asia. And those are the countries that he's talking about the United States engaging with. And there are all sorts of other countries who do not like that rhetoric at all because it conveys American superiority. But just getting back to the question of how the United States thinks about China in the Middle East and China getting involved. Uh, in the Gaza conflict, I think, except for purposes of trying to prevent escalation, with, with which Mr. Miller referred to, uh, if, if the Chinese could help us prevent this conflict in the Middle East from escalating, we would appreciate that for sure. But otherwise, we don't want the Chinese involved in the Middle East at all. We want it all for ourselves. The United States wants to be the dominant power diplomatically, economically, and militarily in that region of the world. And what's happening as a result of the Gaza conflict is it's becoming extremely difficult for us to maintain that position because we've created an opening for the Chinese and for the Russians. And unsurprisingly, they both have jumped into it. Here's uh, President Xi Jinping yesterday. He obviously did not get the message from Matthew Miller. The root cause of the Palestinian-Israeli situation is the fact of the right of the Palestinian people to statehood, their right to existence, and their right of return have long been ignored. I have emphasized on many occasions that the only viable way to break the cycle of Palestinian-Israeli conflict lies in the two-state solution. In the restoration of the legitimate national rights of Palestine and the establishment of an independent state of Palestine. 
There can be no sustainable peace and security in the Middle East without a just solution for Palestine. China calls for early convening of an international peace conference, an international peace conference that is more authoritative to build international consensus for peace and work toward an early solution to the question of Palestine that is comprehensive and sustainable. Wow. Well, I mean, it's very clear uh, that many people in the West, including every president since Jimmy Carter, have argued that it's imperative to get a two-state solution. They have been saying for a long time what Xi Jinping is now saying. I think most people that I know, most people I hang around with, believe that if there's any hope of putting an end to the conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians, there has to be a Palestinian state as well as a Jewish state. But the problem is that the United States has been largely unable to to use the right word, it's been unable to coerce the Israelis uh, who are reluctant at best to accept a two-state solution to move in that direction. Uh, presidents have tried, but they've not been able to really exercise uh, much coercive leverage against the Israelis, in large part because the Israel lobby, Israel's hardline supporters in the United States, have made it impossible for us to put pressure on Israel. And of course, the Israeli government now has no interest whatsoever in a two-state solution, and there's no way that Joe Biden is going to put any pressure on the Israelis to move toward a two-state solution, especially after what happened on October 7th. Uh, so in effect, there is no solution to this problem. Problem. Do we care what President Xi Jinping thinks about the Israeli-Gaza uh, conflagration? We care because diplomatically he's saying all the right things. I think that most American policymakers understand at this point in time we're not going to have a two-state solution anytime soon, if ever. I think they understand that. But they also understand that from Xi Jinping's point of view and from Putin's point of view, uh, it makes eminently good sense to advertise the fact that they are in favor of a two-state solution. They are in favor of helping the Palestinians. They are in favor of shutting this conflict down. And it's the Americans who are principally responsible, of course, along with the Israelis, for the failure to achieve that outcome, which is the right outcome for creating a peaceful situation uh, between the Israelis and the Palestinians. I don't want uh, to spend too much time parsing his words, but what do you think he meant by an authoritative body? Is he talking about the um, uh, Security Council of the United Nations or some other entity that would coerce the Netanyahu government to begin talks for this two-state solution? Well, I would imagine he's talking about the Security Council and... Uh... I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if at some point uh, the Chinese and the Russians try to go to the Security Council and embarrass the United States by forcing it to veto some sort of resolution uh, to move toward a two-state solution. But uh, yeah, there's definitely growing world pressure for some kind of two-state uh, solution, and the U.S. is basically isolated in in their strong support for Israel. Uh, Britain and Australia also support Israel, though not to the degree of the United States, but uh, pretty much all the other nations of the world want some kind of two-state solution and would be looking for ways to impose it on Israel. You know, there's no real authoritative body that matters here. What matters here is that the Americans have to find themselves in a position where they can put pressure on Israel to move towards a two-state solution. Uh, but that's just not in the cards. Uh, and the end result, again, is that this one is just not going to be solved. How diplomatically regressive, if that's the right uh, word, uh, is claiming that the Chinese diplomats referred to the United States as indispensable. I mean, that is farcical. No one would believe that. No, the Chinese certainly don't believe that at all. The Chinese think that the United States is the principal uh, threat to global stability. They have no use for American foreign policy. And the idea that we're the indispensable nation uh, just uh, rubs them the wrong way because we're saying, in effect, that we are superior to them. Uh, remember, the, the rest of Madeleine Albright's famous quote is, we are the indispensable nation. We stand taller and we see further. If you think about those words, we stand taller, we see further. We're superior to everybody else. Even if you think that, you shouldn't say it. Right. Yeah, it's an absurd idea. Madeleine Albright is the one who said to 60 Minutes that even if U.S. sanctions on Iraq you know, cost the lives of 500,000 Iraqi babies, that uh, it's still a po policy of sanctions worth pursuing. Right, right. Um, as you may know, someone spray painted 
mean, this is an act of vandalism and an act of graffiti, which I condemn, but the words are significant. Uh, on one of those pillars on the fence outside the White House, Genocide Joe. And Admiral Kirby responded in a rather animated way uh, about this. I'd like you to listen to what he said, and then I'm going to play what a world leader said about this as well. Genocide Joe from Admiral Kirby. I said this the other day. Again, people can say what they want on, on the sidewalk, and we respect that. That's what the First Amendment's about. But this word genocide is getting thrown around in a pretty inappropriate way by lots of different folks. Uh, what Hamas wants, make no mistake about it, is genocide. They want to wipe Israel off the map. They've said so publicly more than one occasion. In fact, just recently. And they've said that they're not going to stop. What happened on the 7th of October is going to happen again and again and again. And what happened on the 7th of October? Murder, slaughter of innocent people in their homes or at a music festival. That's genocidal intentions. Yes, there are too many civilian casualties in Gaza. Yes, the numbers are too high. Yes. Right. But why does Hamas have these genocidal intentions? All right. It's response to a particularly you know, pressing condition where people in Gaza feel like they're living in an open air prison. And the Palestinians feel like they've been robbed of their land. They have some reason for, for thinking that. So it's not like it's just inherent to Palestinians or inherent to Muslims or inherent to Arabs to be genocidal. It's a reaction to a specific set of circumstances that is the, the dominance of Israel over Palestinians. Fam too many families are grieving. And yes, we continue to urge the Israelis to be as careful and cautious as possible. That's not going to stop from the president right on down. But Israel is not trying to wipe the Palestinian people off the map. Israel's not trying to wipe Gaza off the map. Israel's trying to defend itself against a genocidal terrorist threat. So when we're going to start, if we're going to start using that word, fine, let's use it appropriately. Isn't Israel trying to wipe Gaza and the Palestinian people off the map? Not off the face of the earth, but off the map. He must mean the map of what they consider greater Israel. Well, as I think I said uh, the last time I was on the show, it's very important to understand that when you look at the language that is being used by Israeli elites today, uh, it, it is deeply disturbing. And Omer Bartov, who is an Israeli-born historian and a, and a historian who studies the Holocaust, has said that Israel has genocidal intent in Gaza. Mm. He is not saying that Israel is in the process of committing genocide, but based on the language and based on a lot of what is being seen. So, yeah, there's a lot of discussion that Israel's response is not proportionate. And the basis is that uh, Hamas killed approximately 1,200 Israelis October 7th. And Israel has apparently killed over 10,000 Gazans. But uh, in legal terms, proportionality does not refer to uh, the type of weaponry used. It refers to intent. So Hamas had genocidal intent against Israel. And so Israel is fighting back against an enemy with genocidal intent. And so pro the, the legality regarding proportionality does not mean that if someone goes after you with a knife that you can't shoot them dead because they've only got a knife, so how dare you use a gun? That's illegal. No, if someone's trying to kill you, right, you're legally authorized to kill them. And it doesn't matter if you use a gun or you use a stone or your bare hands. Seen on the battlefield inside of Gaza, he concludes that Israel has genocidal intent. And he, along with a large number of other scholars of the Holocaust, many of whom are Jewish or Israeli, have written a letter to the New York Review of Books that basically makes the same argument. So you want to understand that this is a potentially dangerous situation. So for years, I wondered why John Mearsheimer seemed to only invoke uh, human rights and violations of, of human rights when it comes to Israel's treatment of Palestinians. He, he certainly wasn't invoking you know, Russia's failure to respect human rights in its invasion of Ukraine. In his general perspectives on great power politics, he doesn't pay much attention to human rights. So why, why this selective 
focus on human rights when it comes to Israel's treatment of Palestinians. And then when he made the point that uh, Israel in a month has killed more civilians in Gaza than Russia has killed civilians in its Ukraine war in uh, 18 months, like, okay, that's, that's a very sobering perspective that I had not thought of. Because the Israelis give evidence that they may spin out of control here. So again, my argument is not that the Israelis are committing genocide at this point in time. I don't think that's true. I think that there's no question that they've engaged in mass murder, but uh, not genocide. And uh, nevertheless, as Bartov says, there is genocidal intent here. Here's and uh, so far, Israel's failed to produce evidence that this uh, Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza was a major command center for Hamas. So if the best evidence that they can find is like one uh, mine shaft and some weapons in an MRI facility. All right. That looks incredibly bad for, for Israel. So, so far, Israel has not substantiated its claims that the Al-Shifa hospital was a major command center. And so waging war on a hospital, unless it's a, a major command center for the enemy, just looks absolutely terrible for Israel's cause. Um... President Cyril Ramaphosa of South Africa on this very topic yesterday. The collective punishment of Palestinian civilians through the unlawful use of force by Israel is a war crime. The deliberate denial of medicine, fuel, food and water to the residents of Gaza is tantamount to genocide. Does he make the argument that uh, uh, is being made in the region, in the Middle East, by the non-Israelis? Well, the word genocide is thrown around uh, quite loosely these days by people. I, I think that he's right that Israel is committing war crimes. And I think that starving the population, the civilian population in Gaza is clearly a war crime. I think indiscriminately bombing uh, the population in uh, Gaza is a war crime. There's no doubt about that. But I would not describe either one of those acts as genocide. I don't mean to split hairs here, but you have to have a clear definition of what genocide is. And for me, genocide is a policy that is designed to eliminate an entire population, uh, to effectively kill an entire population. Well, there are members of President, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's cabinet have called for that. I've never heard him call for it. There's no question about that, that, that there are Israeli elites who have called for that. And that's why, again, Omar Bartov, Omar Bartov and other... So a lot of Jews in reaction to the October 7 slaughter did essentially call for the, the destruction of Gaza, not just the destruction of Hamas, the destruction of Gaza. And so th this gets back to something that Thomas Sowell talks about, first stage thinking. So you have a goal, you want to you want to push forward your goal, but whenever you, you act, all right, it always engenders reactions. So this is from Tom Sowell's book, 2010, Applied Economics, Thinking Beyond Stage One. And so he, he says, uh, political thinking tends to conceive of policies, institutions, or programs in terms of their hoped for results, such as drug prevention or gun control or environmental protection or public interest or various you know, gender equality goals. But for purposes of economic analyses, what matters is not what goals are being sought, but what incentives and constraints about are being created in the pursuit of those goals. So when many members of Netanyahu's cabinet essentially called for genocide against uh, Gazans, and when many other Jews have called for the same thing in, in public uh, on social media, that engenders a backlash, which is really bad for Jews and really bad for Israel. So it's not that various policies may fail to achieve their purposes, but we need to know the characteristics of the processes set in motion. So when you act, when you set forward, say, rhetoric about uh, committing genocide against Gazans, all right, you then create incentives and constraints and reaction 
right? And so instead of you know, judging what people say or do by their goals, we, we need to be more wise, more discreet, and think about the unintended consequences of their rhetoric and their policies and their programs. So think beyond stage one and then look to the consequences. So remember that uh, Cafe Pro-Israel Cafe in New York supposedly causing a staff result. Well, all these workers really didn't want to be put in the middle of a Middle East conflict, right? And they didn't want to be buttonholed by customers about the, the Middle East. They simply wanted to do their job in as easy and pleasant way as possible. And being, you know, up, upping, upping, upping the emotional intensity around them was probably not a, a pleasant perspective. And so when when many Jews react in a very visceral, strong, in-group identity pro-Israel rhetoric, that will often encourage those around them who've never even thought in these terms, but they suddenly start saying in reaction to what they perceive as you know, rabid or genocidal pro-Israel sentiments, they start saying, free Palestine. So you may have a goal, you may have a rhetoric, your team has goals, but as it works towards them, right? if you are engendering more opposition then support with, with your rhetoric, you're, you're losing. And I, I saw this with Donald Trump and his supporters. They engendered far more effective opposition than they were able to engender support. Uh, this is uh, Richard Spencer talking about how he thinks uh, Donald Trump is going to be the next Out president. Out of office, people who don't like the fact that he failed on student loans or whatever, Joe Biden but they're going to vote for him anyway. There are a lot of people you could say, oh, you know, Trump is such a specter of evil that they're going to vote for. But, you know, uh, some of those lines are fair, but this is going to be a close election, at least on the electoral college level. He is quite old. He is increasingly out of touch. And my sense is that he is going to lose. Replacing Joe is possible at this stage, but I don't think the DNC is really willing to replace Joe's policies. I mean, you could argue that, I, I mean, look, I think Kamala Harris would be a much worse candidate, but you could argue that maybe Gavin Newsom, you know, goddamn, he's handsome. Uh, you know, he would be a better uh, candidate, um, maybe. But even Gavin Newsom, I don't think could really turn this train around. So that is, I'm basically making an argument of demoralization of your own base of support and a get out the vote issue that leads to a remarkable election, re-election, I guess you could say, of Donald Trump, similar to what we saw in 2016. Although I think this one's going to be worse. Hillary Clinton was out of office, um, even out of the Obama administration, and she was, you know, when, you, when you've been sitting on the sidelines for a little bit, there's a little bit of potentiality. You know, maybe she could have changed. Maybe she's, she would do this differently, et cetera. Joe's in office, and he is overseeing a catastrophe in the eyes of the world, and I think he's going to lose. The other thing about Trump is that there is a lot of fuck you energy with Trump. I see a lot of the fuck you energy from 2016. What do I mean by that? I am referring to uh, basically Michael Moore's famous monologue of 2016, which is that, you know, there's one day a year when everyone is equal, when the billionaire 
Okay, let me get uh, the rest of this uh, Richard Spencer discussion. When the billionaire and the homeless person have the same amount of power, and that is election day. And, you know, I don't know what I think about Donald Trump. I might not even like Donald Trump, but I know that the guy who fired me hates Donald Trump. I know that the media personality who demeaned me hates Donald Trump. And so I'm going to complete the biggest fuck you ever by electing Donald Trump. I see a lot of that energy. Donald Trump as a phenomenon cannot be defeated through the legal system. He cannot be defeated through civil trials. He cannot even be defeated through a criminal trial. He cannot be defeated through a criminal conviction because it is a political, ideological, and, and in some crazy way, religious movement. And I'm not, to be honest, really a part of that ideological or religious movement. But I recognize that it exists and that it is real. They're going to try to nickel and dime him in effect, death by a thousand cuts. It's not going to work. The ideological fervor of fuck you will overwhelm a bunch of lawyers, however justified they are in prosecuting him. And uh, not in all of those cases, some of those cases I could not care less about, but some of them actually, they th they seem quite justified, in fact, but it just doesn't matter. You're using legal technicalities, in effect, a process, and you're not going after him mano a mano, defeating him definitively politically. And being that they're not willing to do that, they, Donald Trump can win, and he can win on the basis of a kind of... Yeah, it's stunning to think that right now Donald Trump is the, the favorite to, to win the, the 2024 election. And there's the same... Fu energy that's just exploded in Holland. All right, Gert Wilders was the the big winner, the the uh, anti-Islam right-wing politician. Raised and, Dionysian well, energy combined with a demoralized, depressed voting base on the left. Okay, thank you. That was uh, Richard Spencer, and the billionaire, and the Come homeless on, stop it. person. Stop it! Stop it! Okay, and then. We, we had uh, this uh, right-wing populist reaction in Argentina, Javier Millet, and in Holland. So let me go to the, the Duran here, get their perspective. about Javier Millet. Uh, he could be a, a, a force for, for change in Argentina, perhaps positive change. He could also be a big bust. <laughs> He's very eccentric. He's very eccentric, very colorful. He says a lot of stuff. He does a lot of stuff. There's a lot of bizarre stuff, but, uh, you know, the Argentinian people, they voted for, for him to be the, the president. And uh, he's, he says he's going to enact some very, very, some very dr drastic, controversial, risky policies, for example, moving Argentina away from the peso towards the USD and, uh, and perhaps even uh, moving Argentina away or out of BRICS, for which they just entered BRICS. So we're going to need some time to, to see how, how he governs. But what are your thoughts on the election in yeah, Argentina? I, I mean, in, in, some ways it, I mean, in some ways, it is unsurprising. I mean, Argentina has had a very troubled economic history for as long as I can remember. And I'm not an expert on Argentina and its economic system. I, I don't know why these problems exist in what 
logically should be a rich country with abundant raw materials, an educated workforce and an industrial base, but they do. And no government up to now seems to have been able to get on top of them. I mean, we've had brief moments when things did appear to be getting better, for example. So I know a lot of people from South America, from mainly Brazil and Argentina, and they make the point, if you get robbed at gunpoint in in uh, Brazil, you very well should fear for your life, all right? If there's an invasion of your home or of your store, all right, you should, you have very real reasons to be concerned for your life. Argentina is a much more European country. So if you get held up, all right, in Argentina, you're much mess, less likely to be physically hurt than in Brazil. So Argentina, for all its problems, still has a per capita GMP about three times that of Brazil. Under Ferdinand Kirchner, not, not Christina Kirchner, this is the husband, not the wife, but when he was president, he did seem to be able to bring things sort of under control. But these dawns, these periods of stability tend to be relatively short. Things go wrong. At the moment, Argentina has 120% inflation. The peso has been... Uh, Bernard makes a great comment in the chat. Muslims call for the genocide of Jews all the time, not exactly getting much reaction. And that's because people have very low moral expectations for Muslims, for Arabs, and for blacks. And so people have much higher moral expectations for Jews and for whites. So that's why the United Nations condemns Israel so often, is that uh, Jews are held to a much higher standard in world opinion than, than Arabs, than, than blacks, than, than Muslims. Right, this is from the podcast, The Duran. Being devaluing and losing its value, and both internally and externally, things have not been well in Argentina. And it is not surprising, given all this history that we've seen and given the current realities, that people in people have decided, well, look, I mean, you know, Millet, Millet may be a bit eccentric and a bit strange, and perhaps some of his proposals are way out of the box, but they could hardly be worse than they are now. You know, he's offering us some way forward, some way that's different to the problems we've long since had, and, you know, let's go for him. And I, again, I'm not going to predict the outcome of this. I suspect, this is my guess, in the short term, some of the things that he's going to do might actually stabilise the situation. I mean, you know, replacing the peso with the USD might, for a while, bring inflation under control, might cause parts of the economy to revive. I suspect that in time, they will be unsustainable and that they could probably cause all kinds of other tensions. But, you know, let's wait and see, as you, see, as you said, and see what comes. More importantly, and it's not perhaps more importantly for the Argentinian people, but perhaps in terms of geopolitical terms, is what he is he going to do about Argentina's recent alignments? And here I'm going to say straightforwardly, I'm absolutely sure that he is not going to take Argentina into the BRICS. Argentina isn't yet in the BRICS, but at the summit in Johannesburg, it received an invitation to join the BRICS. The previous government was intending to join the BRICS in January. Uh, it is universally known that it was President Lula da Silva of Brazil who very, very strongly lobbied the other BRICS states to admit Argentina. Some of the other BRICS states, notably China, I understand, and India were scared. Okay, so the election of these uh, populists like uh, Javier Millet, quite different from populism in, in America, but uh, they are both movements of the right. All right, you've got the same gonzo energy that you have with Trump. You've got the criticism of corrupt elites. You've got rants against the left. You got the same support from social and religious conservatives. At the same time, this uh, Argentine politician is much more of a doctrinaire libertarian than a Trump-style mercantilist or populist. He's more extreme version of Barry Goldwater and Paul Ryan rather than a defender of entitlement spending and tariffs. So, what what do these populist movements have in common? I'm looking at uh, Ross Douthat's column here in the New York Times. So what does it really mean to be on the right? So generally speaking, to be on the right means that you expect that traditional ways of organizing people, 
and communities and things like marriage. All right, the traditional ways are time tested, more likely to be effective than new ways such as same-sex marriage. All right, people on the right are more supportive of harsh punishment for criminals. So the United States could slash its murder rate simply by keeping murderers in prison for longer, right, and for punishing them longer and punishing more of them. So harsher punishment for criminals, right, is a characteristic of a right-wing approach to life. Uh, Restricting immigration and concern about strangers, right, much more likely on the right than on, on the left. All right, so another way of understanding right-left differences is that uh, left-wing politics is more nurturing and kind of like a nurturing mother, and uh, right-wing politics is more rules-bound and hierarchical and authoritative like, uh, like dad. So it's kind of a difference between ethnocentric hawks, conservatives, and empathic doves, liberals, between dad morality and mum morality, between those who are relatively open to outgroups and those who have many more negative feelings about outgroups, which are people on the right. So conservatives use strict father language. Liberals tend to use, you know, nurturing mother language. And so ethnocentrics do not give a fig for individual rights. So libertarianism is not inherently right-wing. You can have left-wing and right-wing libertarian. So any connection between the right wing and the free market is a relatively recent uh, development, right? The, the deep forces that shape political predispositions, right, do not necessarily act directly on controversies over the role of government in society, but uh, they're more deep-seated biological reactions to the role of hierarchy, how concerned we should be about uh, contamination, about outgroups. And I'm working here from a terrific book from 2013, Predisposed Liberals, Conservatives, and the Biology of uh, Political Differences. Uh, let me get a little bit more here from the Duran. Zoom is good advice about when you know, a horrible war is going to, to unfold in, uh, in Israel and in Gaza. But um, as, as your analysis, uh, as you gave your analysis about what's going to happen in the UN, so it is playing out pretty much exactly as as we discussed in those early videos in, in October uh, with regards to this, to this conflict. So where are we now with, uh, with everything taking place in the United Nations Security Council? Well, well exactly. We've now had the first um, actual resolution passed by the UN Security Council. So I just recently discovered Alexander Mukuris and the Durant podcast, and I, I give him credit for his ability to, to understand diplomatic pronouncements and... Uh, what's going on with the United Nations and world opinion and elite opinion seems to be very widely read. And, you know, we had the lead up to this. We've had uh, Russian draft resolutions, which were rejected, Brazilian draft resolutions, which were rejected, American draft resolutions, which were rejected. We've had a vote in the General Assembly, which called for a ceasefire, basically. And now we've had the first resolution, actual resolution, passed through the Security Council. And you can see the trend. The Security Council, the UN Security Council, is edging towards the eventual ceasefire, binding ceasefire resolution. And um, they didn't quite call that to that yes, uh, in, in that latest resolution that we've just seen, because for the moment, the United States still doesn't want to use the word ceasefire. It still doesn't want to have a complete ceasefire, still providing diplomatic cover for um, you know, what the Israelis are doing in Gaza, but they are gradually retreating. And so we've had the resolution and it was proposed by Malta, 
which is an interesting country to propose a resolution like this. There's clearly been an awful lot of backroom negotiation and discussion. Malta is a Mediterranean country. It's an island country. It's part of the European Union, but it is also very friendly to the Arab states. So it's got uh, you know, close historic links with many of the Arab countries. So it came up with this resolution, which calls for prolonged humanitarian pauses. It specifically says that um, the uh, blockades, you know, the energy and water and food should be allowed back into Gaza. It talks about the importance of adhering to international humanitarian law. It does also call on Hamas to release its hostages, which of course it's you know, inevitably going to do, and which is in fact the international consensus within the international community. But it's gradually taking us ever closer to the next, to the eventual end point, which is a resolution either from the Security Council or from the General Assembly, which straightforwardly calls from, for a ceasefire and does so in binding terms. So Israel has rejected this resolution. They said that this isn't um, connected to reality, but we are. So when I talk to my you know, more Zionist uh, Jewish friends, they, they basically have the attitude, F world opinion, we don't care about world opinion, but world opinion matters, right? When world opinion congeals against you, right? It makes life very difficult. Just look at uh, South Africa, right? In large part, it was South Africa that, uh, you know, went up against world opinion with its apartheid policies, and finally South Africans just got tired of, of fighting world opinion. Gradually working that way. And there was an article in the Financial Times which had the, the, quoted the Israeli foreign minister, Eli Cohen, saying that, in his opinion, a... Um, ceasefire, some kind of end, of end of hostilities, is likely to come sometime around the end of November, beginning of December, sometime around then. Okay, so how does the U.S. play this? Because um, I, was, I was listening to your video yesterday, and I, and, and I guess if the U.S. is smart about things, they'll, uh, they'll get Israel to a ceasefire before this, this resolution, this binding resolution is, uh, is passed. Because if a binding resolution is passed, which calls for a ceasefire, I imagine Israel has to honor that resolution. I imagine they have to honor that resolution. I'm not sure. And uh, no, they don't have to honor the resolution. So the United Nations doesn't have any armed forces of substance behind it. The United Nations can only you know, gather armed forces if various powerful countries get together and decide to use the UN to advance their agendas and then propose uh, armed forces that will go do specific tasks. So you may well get international armed forces patrolling Gaza. South Africa has talked about having a willingness to send armed forces there. It's going to look terrible, not only for Israel, it's going to look really bad for the United States as well. It's going to really show the U.S.'s isolation on this, uh, on this matter. So if they're better served, the Biden White House is better served by getting Netanyahu to a ceasefire before the U.N. gets Netanyahu to a ceasefire. Absolutely correct. Now, can I just say the United States does have one thing going for it, in my opinion, in all of this, which is I've been tracking very carefully the debates in the United Nations. And I have to say that the American ambassador strikes me as a capable person. So the ambassador must be giving what I presume is good advice about the trend, the movement in world opinion, the shift in world opinion back to the State Department and to the White House. Now, one doesn't know whether this advice is being followed, but I, I have felt overall that as American diplomats go, this is a good one. So they had that going for them. But let's go to the voting on this particular resolution, because it was extremely interesting and it exposes exactly the point you're making about how the United States risks being isolated and risks being confronted by a binding resolution, if not from the Security Council, perhaps from the General Assembly, which it doesn't really want. That is, in other words, imposed upon it. So the resolution, the draft resolution, which only calls for extended humanitarian pauses, was proposed by Malta. The Russians, who have been driving the demands in the Security Council for an outright ceasefire, 
then proposed an amendment. Now, let us be very clear. This is something that will have been debated by the Russians with the Maltese, with all of the others. So this, is, this would have been prearranged. So the Russians propose an amendment to the resolution. The amendment is based on the vote that was recently made by the General Assembly, which caused, called for a ceasefire, essentially called for a ceasefire. So this is a proposed amendment strengthening this Maltese draft by converting the extended humanitarian pause into an effective ceasefire. Five countries support Russia, all the BRIC states, Brazil, China, uh, the UAE, who are on the Security Council. Uh, the UAE isn't yet a BRIC state, but it will be. So Alexander Mokuris does a daily podcast, usually over an hour in length. I just started listening to it because John Mearsheimer said that he listens to it uh, every day. So I uh, got up at 4.38 this morning, and for the first time, I took Adderall. So this is Luke Ford on Adderall, and I feel great. I had my cold shower, came in about 5 a.m., took my Adderall. So, well, we're going on, you know, four hours now. So I think Adderall's, what, half-life is, what, probably two, two or three hours. So it's about half as intense two or three hours later. So I'm now four four hours into my first Adderall experience, and uh, I feel great. So I've... I've been thinking about getting an ADHD diagnosis for at least 15 years ever since I encountered all these therapists who specialize in sex addiction say that all of their sex addict uh, clients had ADHD. And I thought, whoa, this might include me. And then I started reading books on ADHD. And then I've got uh, family members with ADHD whose lives were completely transformed by taking ADHD medication. And so i Finally broke down, got diagnosed with it about three weeks ago. Finally received my medication in the mail, and uh, it's a new era. I this is this is forty on zero modafinil today. All right, I'm uh, just uh, purely powered by Adderall. So I, I've had so many friends warn me against it. So I, I think these are friends with possibly some addictive or abusive tendencies with regard to medication. I would assume that for people who use Adderall as prescribed, that uh, for, for most of them it's a helpful thing, but absolutely anything can be abused, and Adderall does have addictive tendencies. Modafinil does not have addictive tendencies. Adderall has street value. Modafinil doesn't really have much uh, street value. Adderall is highly addictive. Modafinil is not addictive. Uh, I hear that uh, Adderall, there's a bit of a crash when it wears out. And so there's an inherent uh, biological craving that's created for, for more and more of it. You don't have that with modafinil. Adderall is a stimulant. It's basically amphetamine. Modafinil is not a stimulant. It's often uh, described as a stimulant, but it is not a, a stimulant. It just makes you more alert and more awake. <laughs> Kenneth Brown suggests that your sex addiction can be looked at through the lens of the tri- Apartheid class structure. It is nothing like the buzz from taking co drinking coffee, right? That's a buzz. Uh, Adderall, it was. It's much smoother, and it makes you want to organize things. So on Adderall, I, I took my first Adderall. I wrote three blog posts on LukeFord.net, and I edited two other blog posts. Then I, you know, put down some notes for today's show. I cleaned my bathtub. Um, so it just it makes you want to be productive. Modafinil is similar. Modafinil also helps with ADHD, though 
it's not a top line, first line of attack medication for ADHD, but it certainly helps. Uh, Adderall is a, a stronger effect than modafinil. Modafinil is much milder. Uh, coffee is buzzy. Adderall just makes your, your mind feel strong. And modafinil makes your mind feel curious. Uh, nicotine. All right, nicotine. I've had some nicotine gum. It, just, it seems to heighten the power of your thinking. So it's not a buzz like coffee. It just seems to make you a little smarter. So, yeah, I can rotate different meds and modalities, keep from you know, developing a habit or an addiction or building up to toxicity. Uh, the chat says, get a TENS unit. I got a TENS unit. Vegas nerve stimulator, a heat and cold therapy, mushrooms, etc. Okay. So let's uh, get a little bit more here from the Duran. Probably very soon. They support the Russians. So does Madagascar. That's five out of the states. One state votes against the Russian amendment, and that is the United States. All the others, all of them, abstain, including Malta which has actually proposed this resolution. They don't fundamentally object, in other words, to the Russian amendment, proposed amendment, to their own resolution, rather than vote against it, as you would expect that they would do. They actually abstain. Even France, Britain, Switzerland are too embarrassed to vote against, too embarrassed by the situation, to actually positively vote against the Russian amendment. So then the resolution itself, without the Russian amendment, goes to the vote. Everybody supports it, except three countries. These are the United States and Britain, which both abstain. And, of course, the Russians, who are simply keeping their powder dry. Because and uh, Alexander Mercurius here from the Duran podcast. He says the Biden administration is the most inept foreign policy team, uh, most inept foreign, has the most inept foreign policy of any American administration since prior to World War II. So we are risking war the United States getting involved in wider war in Ukraine, in the Middle East, and over Taiwan. The Biden administration has plans to send $10 billion worth of arms to Taiwan, which China is not going to have a very positive reaction. 40, thoughts on the unhinged Jewish boomer telling an Arab immigrant that he will call Egyptian security so they can torture his family. I think this is an example of Ashkenazi you know, shock speech. Right, Ashkenazi Jews are very rarely physically violent, but uh, they are frequently verbally violent. And I'm sure, I'm sure that uh, that Jewish boomer regrets what he said. Uh, give me the link. I, I want to play that. All right. Uh, let me let me find more here from the, the Duran talking about what disaster Biden's foreign policy is. Newsom went there, and he clearly was working with the administration as well. And they they moved heaven and earth. To get, um, to get Xi Jinping to come to uh, San Francisco to attend the summit. And the Chinese played very, very hard to get. They kept us all guessing right up until almost the last moment about whether or not Xi Jinping was actually going to come. And what we also know, and this is an important thing to say, is that the Chinese, in terms of the optics, drove a ferociously hard bargain. They insisted that the streets of San Francisco must be completely cleaned up, and they were. They uh, basically said no protesters, no protesters anywhere near uh, Xi Jinping or his motorcade. And there were none. We had all these people from the Chinese community in San Francisco, which is a big community, as we all know, coming out, waving the Chinese flags so that it looks as if Xi Jinping has this enormous support. in. Uh, um... Yeah, so I regard what uh, this what ex-Obama official 
says to the halal cop guy, I think it's Reverend Hassan. Really? Okay, go, yeah. And to the Egyptian, uh, the Muhabarat wants your picture. Okay, yeah, go. Yeah? You know the Muhabarat? Hmm? The Muhabarat. No, I don't know. You don't know? I just speak English. No? Yeah, go, yeah. The Muhabarat in, in Egypt will get your parents. Go, go, go. Does yeah. your father like his fingernails, though? Oh, no, man. Take them out one by one. Go, go, go. Why should I go? Why should I go? Tell me why I should go. I'm standing here. I'm an American. I have free, It's a free country. It's not like Egypt. Yeah, Ashkenazi Jews can be violent. Anyone can be violent. But in the West and in Israel, they have very low violent crime rates, right? Going to war for the survival of your nation is a very different modality than just committing random street murders. Yeah, this guy is reprehensible. Like, don't, don't harass people and don't <laughs> threaten to torture. Did you rape people. your daughter like Muhammad did? Oh my hmm? God. Did you rape your daughter like Muhammad? I speak English. You only speak English? No, speak no English. No. You don't speak English? Yes. All right. Well, that's, that's, see, that just shows how ignorant you are. Because your Muhammad was a rapist. It says in the, in the Hadith. Oh, Muhammad. In your holy book. Oh, Muhammad. What? Oh, Muhammad. Muhammad, your, your prophet. You know who he is. My broker? Yeah. He was a rapist. He raped Aisha. Does it say that in the Hadith or not? You know that? I do speak English. What? No English. You don't speak English? What do you speak? You speak Arabic, the language of the Quran, the Holy Quran, that some, some people use as a toilet. <laughs> what do you think of that? People who use the, the Quran as a toilet. Does it bother you? <laughs> Does it bother you? Tell me the truth. So apparently this guy is 84 years old. He looks pretty good for 84, but it's also not uncommon as people, you know, get older that they become, you know, less constrained. English? That's too bad. That's why you're selling food in a, in a food cart. Because you're, you're ignorant. But you should learn English. It'll help you. Of course, When they yeah. report you back to Egypt... And the Muhabarat wants to interview you for being a... because I'm Look, we all have a, a part of ourselves that regard those who are different as subhuman. And we normally completely suppress that. And when we, we do express that normal human uh, tendency to regard those who are different as, as subhuman, right, usually it's not caught on... Uh, on camera and then publicized for the world to see, we have all said vile things similar to this guy, right? He's 84 years of age and he, he fell prey to that very human instinct of just, you know, wanting to mock and belittle someone who's, you know, different, who's, who he sees as representing Hamas. And, and I, I think what he did was absolutely disgusting, but I also recognize that's just a universal human tendency is to regard anyone who's not us as less than human. The United States, amongst people, Chinese origin at least, um, the Chinese insisted that the meeting take place before 
the APEC summit itself, so as to make it absolutely clear that, you know, Xi Jinping is not just one amongst many Asia-Pacific leaders that the President of the United States is meeting. He is far and away the most important. They insisted, apparently, that the venue be away from San Francisco itself, so that was why it happened at the Falofi estate. I mean, they were put in complete control of all of the optics. So people in China, they see all of this. Yeah, so this is uh, Stuart Seldowitz, and uh, he also is 84, all right, just unhinged. Also, New Yorkers tend to be much more verbally aggressive than uh, most other Americans. Here he is going after You're Russia. You're not answering my question. How does it feel to be a criminal? You're not answering my question. Really? Okay, go, yeah. And to the Egyptian, uh, the Muhabarat wants your picture. Okay. It says in the... In the ah. Uh, awful behavior, but also yeah, all, all too common. But usually, people are not uh, are not uh, caught on camera. But we all have this tendency just to dismiss the humanity of those who are different. They see, you know, Xi Jinping's motorcade with all the red flags there. They have this this meeting, and then, of course, directly after the meeting with Biden, in what I think is an astonishing demonstration of power. And I think this is partly what the Chinese were up to. You had this meeting at the Regency Hyatt in San Francisco with all the business leaders there, Cook of Apple, Elon Musk. They're all. OK, let me let me look here at the chat. Luke Cross says, how many people who think like him are in the U.S. government have influence over U.S. foreign policy? He's retired so he can be honest about his real beliefs. These are not necessarily his, his real beliefs, right? They are a product of a particular time and circumstance, the aftermath of the October 7 Hamas attack on, on Israel. Uh, also, he's you know, gotten much older, and many you know, old people in their 70s and 80s, they just start you know, flying off the handle and uh, saying things that they would not have said when they were younger. So what people say when they are angry is not necessarily reflective of their true beliefs. Everything that we say and do is a product of a particular time and particular circumstances and a particular situation. Right? There's no true self. Like Everything we are is shaped by the situation that we are operating in. Right? This is back to the Durant podcast on the... President Joe Biden's summit with President Xi from China and uh, Joe Biden's press conference disaster following that summit. There, and they make this great, uh, uh, they give uh, Xi Jinping a standing ovation. And um, it's become clear to the people across the world, in China, in the United States, that Xi Jinping and the US-China relationship has the support of the American business community. So, I mean, it, it is, you can see how the Chinese controlled the summit. And they did it because the Americans pleaded with them for it. So why did the Americans do all of this? Why did they engage in all of these concessions? I think it's a very simple answer. Partly, it is what you said. They don't want another crisis at this time. Project Ukraine has gone hideously, disastrously wrong. They have another crisis in the Middle East. Um, Biden's poll numbers are um, in a critical state. So they don't want another crisis, especially in the year next year, which is the year of the coming presidential election in November. So they don't want that to happen. And at the same time, and I think equally important, within the United States, it's clear that there is still a big China lobby, people who want to maintain good business relations with China. And they are important people. They are people who are important Democratic Party donors. They are people who the United States government cannot simply ignore, the Democratic Party. There are lots of people I know who've had their catalytic converter stolen four times this year. Right? All sorts of people I know in, in Los Angeles have had their catalytic converter stolen over and over and over again. Oi, I mean, what, what a nightmare. And 
Californians brought this on themselves. Los Angelinos brought this on themselves by selecting DAs who don't punish such crimes. And Californians passed a referendum saying that if you steal less than $950, it, it only counts as a misdemeanor, not a felony. So we get to choose how much crime we have, all right, in large part, by how severely we punish crime and how much of a priority we put on catching and convicting criminals. Cannot simply ignore. And, of course, Janet Yellen, who is the uh, Treasury Secretary, she has her other concern, which is that the United States is now running massive budget deficits. It needs to raise funds to keep the government going, especially with all the problems in Congress. So she needs to try to persuade the Chinese to go to resume buying Treasury bonds. And note that when Xi Jinping arrives at the airport, who is there to greet him? It's Janet Yellen. Yeah, they need money. They need money. Okay, here's, a, here's another clip from uh, Stuart Seldowitz, who was President Obama's former National Security Council advisor. And here he is talking about the Arabs. We used to joke when I was in the State Department that, you know, the Middle East was 500, you know, is, is quickly entering the 14th century. So, okay. you know, we used to joke when I was in the State Department. Okay, that that's not, I think that's... Uh, I don't think that's a cheap put down, right? The Arab Islamic world is incredibly primitive. And uh, that's that's just the state of the Arab Islamic world. It's not inherent to Islam. It's not inherent to Arabs. That is the state now of the Arab Islamic world, right? And it can change and circumstances change, but that is the state now. <laughs> the government needs money. The Biden uh, campaign needs money. They need money, and, and, and they need to, to make sure that, that uh, they, they, don't, they don't end up in another um, quite, uh, conflict. I was going to say quagmire. <laughs> conflict, but maybe quagmire is the correct word. Uh, yeah, but, you know, they control the, the ability to not end up in another conflict. I mean, it's, it's in their control, and I think Xi Jinping actually said as much in Absolutely. his statement. He said, we have two choices. We can either learn to live together, or this can be a zero-sum game, and you guys... All right, here's another clip of uh, Stuart Soldowitz. Talking about if we killed 4,000 Palestinians, it was not enough. If we killed 4,000 Palestinian kids, you know what? It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Go, go, go. That's horrible. You know what? If we killed 4,000 Palestinian kids, you know what? It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Go, 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 go. So, former Barack Obama foreign policy advisor. There he is. So one of the the best moral guide that I know is not thinking what would God think, because for most people, God is not as viscerally real to them as other people's opinion. But ask, what would your neighbors think? What would your friends think? What would your parents think? Right, what would your enemies think about what you're about to say and do? What would your employer think? Like when, when you're live streaming, keep in mind, what would your parents think? What would your friends think? What would your neighbors think? What would your enemies think? What would an attorney think? And uh, think about what would be the consequences to your life if the words and actions that you're engaged in were to be publicly broadcast, say, on the, the front page of the New York Times. The single best moral guide, single best guide to decent and effective behavior of which I'm aware. Just picture your words and your actions on the front page of the New York Times. Just continue escalating, and, and so be it. I mean, it doesn't get more clear than, than, than that. Absolutely. And can I come back and say, make the previous point that the Chinese 
through controlling all the optics of the summit, through getting all the business people to give Xi Jinping a standing ovation, they gave a tremendous demonstration of their own power. And I think, you know, in terms of competition, what they're basically saying, look, we don't want to supplant you. We don't want to replace you as the world's leading country. This is not what we are about. The world, the planet is big enough for both of us. But if you come after us, if you start turning ugly against us, we are supremely powerful and we can deal with it. And that was, you know, that is the underlying message that the Chinese conveyed over the course of And the chat says this guy, Stuart, he believes 50 Arabs are worth uh, one Jewish life. Well, that's pretty normal if you have a strong in-group identity, right, to think that uh, that one member of your group is worth more than 500 members of some of the, the enemy or some hated out-group. I think that's just a, a normal human reaction. Now, you're absolutely right. The administration has the power to control this thing. But this is where we come back to the problem at the core of the administration. And I have to say this uh, uh, straight. Yeah, so having loathing and contempt for a hated out-group, even though that's normal, natural, and even to some degree healthy, uh, particularly if you, you keep it, say, no more than a, a three or four in intensity, but you should not publicly broadcast it. Right? That's a really bad idea. All right? You should have a safe space within your in-group where you can give vent to your most bigoted thoughts and feelings, but don't go venting them on strangers. Right. Think about what they would look like if they were published on the front page of the New York Times. The core of the problem is the president. Even if there were some people like, say, Yellen in the administration who wanted to pursue a genuine detente and rapprochement with the Chinese, it is impossible. It is structurally impossible because we saw the president. As I said, it's, I have serious doubts about whether or not he's whether he's really capable of conducting a summit meeting with Xi Jinping. And then he gave this utter car crash of a press conference afterwards. And I mean, it, it was embarrassing. You could see Blinken's face through it. I mean, many people. And uh, Luke Croft says in the chat, yeah, Stuart should have been smart and quietly advanced Jewish interests without the outward displays of hatred. We, we should all be smart, right? If you loathe gay marriage, it's not going to advance your cause or your life, right? If you, you know, publicly advocating how much you loathe gay, gay marriage. If you uh, loathe the idea of a Palestinian state, all right, it's not going to advance your life or your cause to go around uh, saying those things out loud. Uh, you have to understand the consequences, what goes beyond stage one, right? What will your words and actions elicit uh, from, from other people, right? Uh, I think Jesus said something wise to be as wise as, serv- as, wise as serpents and, and appear as harmless as doves. That's a pretty good approach to life. Right, back to the Duran here, the podcast analysis, Alexander Makuris talking about Joe Biden's disastrous press conference after his summit meeting with China's dictator. I've commented about this. The president was barely in control of what he was saying. He's clearly uh, being managed now. I mean, the, the overall impression was that he really has no control over himself, let alone over the United States government. And I mean, he blurts out state secrets on, in a press conference. I mean, imagine if Donald Trump had done something like that, what people would have been saying. But, you know, the president does that, apologizes to his own secretary of state whilst doing it, making the secretary of state even more embarrassed. He, he uses the dictator words to describe Xi Jinping just after he's had a press conference with him. I mean, the whole thing is an utter car crash. So let us assume, let's just 
guess for a moment that, you know, um, these, there's all these people in the administration who are coming along to the president and saying to him, well, you know, we need to have a better relationship with the Chinese. How can the president assume control of the government and actually force that policy, even if he agreed with it? And on the basis of what we saw yesterday, I doubt that he does, by the way. My sense is that his feelings about China remain as viscerally hostile as always. But, you know, even if that was his policy, how is he capable of enforcing the policy on the administration? Uh, one, one gets the sense that he's not ultimately the person who's making the big decisions. And he's certainly not the person who's capable of enforcing the decisions. The American system is based on the president taking an active control and supervising and running the government. If the president doesn't run the government, then nobody does. The secretary of state can't act in his place. The national security advisor can't act in his place, even if they tried to. Other parts of the bureaucracy would be fully justified in saying, but we're not going to listen to what you say because you have no authority to give us orders. So we see that even and as at the same time as the president comes along, tells Xi Jinping, according to the Chinese reader, well, about Taiwan, we're not going to support the China, Taiwanese independence. We're not looking to create problems with you over Taiwan. We know that other parts of the government are now working hard to get a $10 billion arms package to Taiwan. And that is exactly what is going to enrage the Chinese. And Xi Jinping himself actually said to Biden, according to the Chinese readout, that arms deliveries to Taiwan are for the Chinese a red line and that Taiwan remains for China the most sensitive issue. So even if the president, against his own instincts, were to agree that detente with China at the present time was the most important thing, it's one has to doubt, based on what we saw yesterday, that he would be in a position to enforce that against the other people in his government, the, the hardliners in his government that want to pursue further escalation. Yeah, the whole thing is, is dysfunctional. And the Chinese, the Chinese saw that, they realized that. I wouldn't be surprised if another reason they decided to actually take this meeting, Xi Jinping actually traveling to the US, is because he wanted to see it firsthand for himself. I would not be surprised if, if they also said, you know, uh, these guys have lost complete control of, of everything. Let's just go see how bad it really is. I would not be surprised if that's a part of it as well. And they probably left that meeting just shaking their heads going, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's worse than we thought. They probably Absolutely. said it's worse than we thought. And, um, and, and I think that's just on, on a final note, I, I think that's the problem is that what you said is, is Biden doesn't have control of, of the government. That's obvious. I mean, everyone knows that. But the question comes up, who does? You know, it, it's the same thing that we're seeing with, that we saw with Ukraine. Uh, you know, I, was, I, I put out a tweet the other day where before this meeting uh, took place. And I said, you know, Putin and, and Biden, they had a meeting in June, 2021 a summit meeting in Geneva. Uh, the talks went well, but there were differences. That was the conclusion. Then they had a virtual meeting in December, 2021. And then we had the, the conflict in February, 2022. So I mean, we've, we've been down this, this road before. Yes. And, and the question arises, there, there's a part of the administration that wants to have these meetings and these talks that, that wants to try and, and open up some dialogue, even if they are getting pressure from the business community. Okay. But then there's another part of the administration that wants to send money to Taiwan. And there's another part of the administration that wants to create trouble in, uh, in the Asia Pacific. And there's another part of the administration that wants to give money to the military. It's so complicated. I mean, the whole thing is just so freaking dysfunctional. And even people like Blinken, just finally, even people like Blinken who are at the meeting, he's, he's trying to manage Biden so that things don't, don't, don't go off the deep end. But you know, if, if there's going to be escalation with China, he's going to be the first person to, to get on CNN and say, yes, Xi Jinping is a dictator. He's done it before. So I mean, even the people in attendance are, 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 are talking out of both sides of their mouths. They, they don't have any clear position. You're absolutely right in everything you said. Now, bear in mind, the entire world, every 
country in the world, every government in the world has seen those pictures of uh, the president. They've, they've watched the press conference. What the president of the United States does in a press conference is followed and watched by everybody. The Russians will have watched it. The Chinese obviously have, but you know, everybody, the North Koreans, the Syrians, the Saudis, the uh, Indians, everybody is going to be tracking and observing this. And of course, it gets even worse because, of course, the Chinese are going to go back to Beijing. Beijing is going to, uh, Xi Jinping is going to go back to Beijing. He's going to brief the Politburo there. And the Chinese are going to share their impressions of this meeting with their great friends, who are, of course, the Russians. Now, you're absolutely correct. The whole thing is now completely dysfunctional. You talked about those disastrous meetings that took place in 2021, the one in June 2021 and the one in December 2021 between Putin and Biden. Those meetings ended up making the relationship worse because the Russians who sensed that a crisis was coming, looked to get some kind of reach some kind of understanding with the president. And they had these encounters with the president and they seemed to come away with the impression from both of those meetings that some kind of an understanding was reached. And they saw the policy then move in the opposite direction. And that undoubtedly soured the relationship between the Americans and the Russians even further. It's worse now. And I'm going to say something else. I think this summit meeting in San Francisco is going to ultimately lead to a further deterioration of relations with China. I think this is a thing people need to understand because the Chinese, have, having met Biden, having explained things to Biden, having discussed everything with Blinken, will have come to the conclusion that the administration is incapable of pursuing a policy of detente and rapprochement with them. So they're going to intensify from this point onwards the steps they're going to be taking to secure their own position, to build up their forces, to make the proper trade relationships, especially with the Russians, to make sure that they get the necessary uh, you know, raw materials and food supplies in case there's a major crisis um, over Taiwan. But Let's, let's talk about Ukraine as well. There's been no contacts between Biden and Putin since the conflict, the, you know, the, the, the military side of the conflict began in February 2022. And I think we can now see why, because the Russians aren't particularly keen, have shown no real desire at the moment to talk to Biden. But how does the administration set up a meeting between Biden and Putin at this time? How do they get Biden to telephone Putin to talk about the problems in Ukraine? I mean, the risks of doing that of exposing Biden to a summit meeting or even a prolonged conversation with Putin, especially when there's a conflict like the one we're seeing underway. The risks are simply enormous. And the various parts of the US bureaucracy, some of them, are bound to oppose it anyway. And if Biden cannot speak to Putin, what other Western leaders are able to, given that Biden can't come to an agreement with Putin, and given that it is the United States that has been driving this whole thing uh, right from the outset? Any French or Italian or heaven help us, German leader that tries to communicate at this time with Putin and tries to reach an understanding with him, you know, assuming that they even wanted to do that, knows perfectly well that they risk having the rug pulled underneath them by the United States because they can talk to Biden. They can reach some kind of understanding, as they think, with Biden. But they have no certainty that that understanding will stick. So we have total paralysis in diplomacy. You know, we've been talking about the paralysis in U.S. diplomacy. Um, that um, has been the hallmark of this administration. We now see an important reason why that is so. Yeah. How dumb are the European Union leaders? And is the U.S. stumbling into unnecessary conflicts in the Middle East? All right, we've got all these Iranian proxies who are attacking U.S. bases. Like, who knew like, that we have bases in Syria, right, against Syria's will, right? It's crazy. I mean, how would you feel like if, if China or Russia had military bases in the United States? To, to get it to place. Yes. And then well, I imagine we, we, could be, we could be heading into a situation where there's another attack on a U.S. base in Iraq or Syria, and that would be the trigger to, to set everything off. 
we, we are dangerously close to that point, and we're getting ever closer to that point. Let me say this again. Even if a political decision to attack Iran has not yet been made, even if, you know, there's argument and dissension about this within the administration, which there may be, even if we assume that someone like, let's say, Blinken is opposed to this, which he might be. I mean, he's been going around the Middle East. He's been getting uh, doors slammed in his face there. He probably has a better sense of the strength of Arab opinion than other people in Washington do. The mere presence of these military assets in the Middle East, poised to attack Iran, means that the temptation to use them to attack Iran is going to grow. And the pressure, therefore, from the people who have always wanted to attack Iran is going to increase also. And it's going to increase even more as the situation in um, Gaza itself looks increasingly as if... It uh, why are there U.S. military bases in Syria? They're, I think they're justified on the basis that we need them to fight ISIS. Or we need them to uh, protect the Syrian people from the Syrian government. Uh, but it, it's just crazy to me that we have military bases in Syria, and it's only because Syria is racked by a civil war and doesn't have a strong government that we can, we can pull this off. But you're just engendering so much unnecessary hatred and, and outrage by people in the Middle East against America for our overly intrusive actions in the Middle East. It is becoming bold, yeah. So why doesn't Iran, if, if you are to believe what, what the U.S. is saying and these groups are, are run by Iran, they're controlled by, uh, by the Iran state, why doesn't Iran just tell these groups, look, um, we understand that um, you want to attack these, these U.S. bases which illegally occupy uh, Syria and uh, that are present in Iraq, but for the time being, because things are so tense, don't don't launch any attacks on these um, illegal U.S. bases. I think that is exactly. Or, or maybe they don't. Mean. Or maybe they don't control. Or maybe they don't control yeah. these militias. I mean, maybe, yeah, again, yeah, if yeah. we are to believe what the U.S. is saying, that's why I'm asking. That's why I said, if yeah. we are to believe what the U.S. is saying, yeah. I, I, well, I think you, 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 you to a great extent answered the question because, of course, the U.S. and Israel act as if these uh, militias are pure Iranian proxies. That the Iranian intelligence agencies, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, um, controls. <laughs> has tight control over these, um, over these militias. It's important to remember, however, that they are militias. They are not part of any regular army. That is also true, by the way, of Hezbollah itself. And it is a fundamental misconception to think that these militias have the same kind of discipline that, say, a irregular, irregular military force has. And I, am, I have no doubt at all that the Iranian government does not, is not looking for the moment for a war with the United States. And they've been sending their people to Beirut, to uh, Baghdad, to eastern Syria. They've been talking with these militia people. They're, all the evidence is that this is indeed what they're doing. And they're telling them, cool down, keep disciplined, don't begin this fight. And um, I, we had that speech last weekend, on Saturday last weekend, from Hassan Lazralah, who is the um, head of the Lebanese Hezbollah, by far the most powerful. And he said, look, you know, Iran wasn't involved in what happened on the 7th of October and wasn't consulted. We weren't uh, consulted and we weren't involved. We are not looking to fight. He's trying, in other words, to exert discipline on his own fighters and on his own people. But of course, discipline like that is difficult to maintain. And when um, fighting between militias in this very tense and fraught international atmosphere in the Middle East begins, it, it may be very, very difficult for Iran itself to control its own allies and to exert the kind of discipline over them that the United States is demanding that it should. There is another factor, which is... Right. Proxies are not clones. Right. Proxies have some uh, autonomy, right? They have some agency, right? This is the Council on Foreign Relations, a scholar from there, 
talking about why the U.S. has sent so many military resources, including two aircraft carriers to the Mediterranean and a nuclear power submarine uh, to the Middle East. For the U.S. forces to fight alongside the Israelis. They were clearly intended to send a message to Israel's other adversaries in the region that any steps taken to widen the conflict beyond Israel and the Gaza Strip would be met with a resounding American response. And that message was specifically directed at Hezbollah, Lebanese organization that's been around since the early 1980s, which is you know part of what's called the axis of resistance, of which Hamas is part of, and to the Iranians, which is sort of the patron of the axis of resistance. And there was clearly an effort to send the message that widening the conflict is not in either Hezbollah or Iran's effort. Okay, so what is the axis of resistance? Yeah, I threw that out there. So Iran's overall goal is to drive the United States out of the Middle East. And one of the ways in which they try to do this is through proxy groups like Lebanon's Hezbollah, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, the Houthis in Yemen, and of course, Hamas. Now, all of these groups are kind of under the umbrella of the axis of resistance, but they have you know varying degrees of autonomy. And so through these proxies, Iran has the ability to sow chaos in and around the borders of America's partners in the region. And Hamas has specific nationalist goals and other goals that align with Iran's goals as well, which is quite frankly, the destruction of Israel. So just to circle back to where we are, it makes sense that we want to make sure this war doesn't spread to all these other places. But just so I fully understand, our aircraft carriers and the rest, they're not boots on the ground. They're not doing any shooting at all. They're just sort of floating there intimidatingly, telling everyone to sort of stay chill. Right. I mean, if you've ever been up near a modern American warship, they are... It is not chill. <laughs> it is definitely, definitely an intimidating sight. I mean, American warships have shot down missiles that the Houthis in Yemen have fired in Israel's direction. And that's the point. I think in addition to deterrence, the idea is to provide assistance, should the Israelis need it, in terms of missile defense. So... You know, Israel has very sophisticated layers of missile defense. The Iron Dome system, which people have heard about, was an Israeli project that the United States joined in 2012. But if the war were to widen and to include Hezbollah, they have reportedly in excess of 100,000, some estimate as much as 150,000 rockets that can hit Israel. Under those circumstances, Israel's defense systems would be at best taxed and at worst, not likely to be able to keep up with the rate of fire from Lebanon. And so the United States, those ships in the region would be a backstop for Israel's own defenses. And I suspect, because there are reports that President Biden took the unusual step of communicating directly with the Iranian leadership, that he warned them in the event that the war is widened, the United States will respond in a resounding kind of way, which raises the stakes in this conflict for Americans. We also said senior military... Okay, so this is kind of a centrist uh, perspective here. ...military officers to Israel to talk to them about American experiences in Iraq in trying to root out the Islamic State in both Iraq and Syria and the challenges that that represents because the Gaza Strip, 25 miles long, six miles wide, is a very, very built up area and that Hamas is... In right. So this is kind of an establishment centrist perspective. This is from the Council on Foreign Relations. Right. Uh, the Duran, not part of the establishment. And let's get back to Alexander Mercurius from the Duran podcast talking about U.S. military fighting with militias in the Middle East. Of course, Iran itself as we also know, is not a political monolith. I get the sense that, you know, the supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, is not looking for a conflict with the United States. Uh, the I I Iranian government, led by Ebrahim Raisi, is not looking for a conflict with the United States. But that doesn't mean that everybody in Iran, within the leadership and political structures, might not, might, you know, might share those views, might necessarily shares those views. There may be some people, you know, in the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, for example, that, you know, are also furious about what's going on in Gaza, um, um, furious about this build-up by U.S. forces, still burning to re avenge the assassination some years ago of their chief, uh, you know, General Soleimani, and they might actually be looking for a fight with the United States. So, you know, the Iranian government, oh, you know, itself may want to avoid a war, but that doesn't mean it is able to control the situation. 
Right. So the, the best thing they can do is, is prepare. Yeah. yeah I'm sure, and I'm sure that's what they're doing. And of course, the trouble is, it, you know, it works on the other side. Obviously, Iran doesn't have the scale of military assets that the United States does. But of course, the more they prepare, the more, again, the uh, risk of escalation increases because, you know, the U.S. will see all these forces. They will see the missiles being moved to their bases. We know that this is happening. They will see all of those steps being taken. And that will increase pressure in Washington from people there. They will say, look, the Iranians are taking all of these steps. That means that ha they have some aggressive intention. And they're also attacking our people across the Middle East. So let's retaliate and let's retaliate hard before the Iranians get their blowing. So it's that's, that's an incredibly dangerous situation and one which, um, you know, I, I think the Iranian government does have some control over it. But, you know, within Washington at the moment, I'm not sure that anybody does. And that's an even more dangerous situation that, than everything else we've been talking about. Well, the neocons in, in uh, the U.S. are definitely saying uh, strike first. Uh, Tim, Tim Scott in the uh, in the debates the other day. Uh, the GOP debates, I think he said, uh, cut off uh, the, the snake of, uh, cut off the head of the snake, meaning Iran and strike first now. That was what uh, Tim Scott said. So, I mean, the, the neocon thinking right now is, is dominated by this, this strike first at Iran um, mentality. Any, anyway, uh, okay. So that's that's the, the World War Three angle. Uh, let's talk about what's happening uh, in the war in uh, in Gaza, in uh, Israel. Well, you, uh, mean, what's it, what's happening there? It, I mean, it's essential to understand that these two things are connected with each other. I mean, the right the reason people like Tim Scott, and of course he's he's Republican, but of course he, the, the neocons are you know present in both parties, and they're neocons first and foremost before they are Republicans or Democrats. Let's you know always remember that. So you know the, the reason they are so in such a strong position at the moment, in such a pole, pole position, is because there is already a conflict in the Middle East, an armed conflict in the Middle East, in which the US is intimately involved, and that, of course, is the conflict in Gaza. And one gets the sense, you know, this is a difficult conflict to read, because, again, we get very controlled information from each side. But one gets the sense, again, that this isn't going particularly well. Um, General Scott, the new chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the United States, he stopped over in Tokyo um, on Thursday, and he was interviewed there by reporters, and he said that, what the Israelis are trying to do to destroy Hamas in Gaza is a very tall order. So he didn't seem to think that it would be an easy thing to do. From, in fact, my own impression, reading his words, is that he didn't think it was an achievable thing to do. And apparently, again, the Israelis are suffering losses, not huge losses, but real losses in both men and equipment. And I get the sense also that though they managed to you know, encircle Gaza City uh, by moving along the main roads. They've not really so far taken the battle to where Hamas is strongest in its own strongholds, which is, of course, in the urban areas. And meanwhile, the fighting there continues, or rather the bombing has continued. But what we now see is that the political pressure to ease off is growing. And we now have these humanitarian pauses, which are supposed to happen every day. I mean, partly the intention is to try to get people out of northern Gaza into southern Gaza. It's not clear to what extent that is actually happening. But when there are humanitarian pauses, the pressure to extend them into a permanent ceasefire is inevitably going to grow. And there are reports of increasing dissension within the administration, within the U.S. government, within the State Department, within even the White House. White House aides are unhappy. People within the Democratic Party are unhappy. They're looking at the situation in Michigan and other states like that, where there's large Arab, commu Arab, uh, uh, vote, Arab communities that you know, are key in, you know, in tightly fought elections. And you, you can sense that both Biden and Netanyahu are feeling the pressure because both of them, have again had to come out and say that, you know, for the moment they're, they're opposing a ceasefire, even though, as I said, the pressure is growing, on, is growing all the time. And can I just say, I mean, it's not just political pressure in Israel and in the United States and in the Middle East. It's political pressure in all the European countries. There is now a major political crisis which is just stirred up in Britain in which the Home Secretary, the person in charge of the uh, 
you know, police forces ultimately is now in conflict. Uh, that's uh, the person called. Okay, I want to get a buzz from uh, John Mearsheimer. He was just speaking at Judge Napolitano's Other show. Uh, scholars of the Holocaust are worried about genocidal intent. But again, intent is different from actually committing genocide. And but in a, in a world where uh, international law is essentially unenforced or selectively enforced against those who manage to get caught, does it matter if we're talking about war crimes or genocide? We're talking about the slaughter of innocents, civilians. Well, I think it does matter because I think genocide is a far worse crime than massacring civilians. Uh, I don't want to make light of massacring civilians, and it almost sounds like I'm doing that, but I don't want to make light of it. I don't want to make light of what the Israelis are doing in Gaza. I think it's absolutely horrible, but I don't think it's a genocide at this point in time. I think there is potential for genocide, and I think you have to be very careful here. And that's why I think that people who study the Holocaust, which was clearly a genocide, understand that we're out on the slippery slope here, or the Israelis are out on the slippery slope. Of course, Joe Biden is backing them to the hill. And this is why people are spray painting words like genocide Joe. Uh, outside the White House. Uh, and he should be aware of what's going on, and he should go to great lengths to make sure we don't slide down that slope. Here's uh, President Vladimir Putin of Russia at a BRICS conference yesterday with his views on all this. We call for joint efforts of the international community aimed at de-escalating the situation, a ceasefire, and finding a political solution to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And the BRICS states and countries of the region could play a key role in this work. Why is he jumping in on this, Professor Mearsheimer? It makes eminently good sense diplomatically. He looks like a good guy to the vast majority of people on the planet. We're the ones who look like the bad guys. Both Putin and Xi Jinping understand uh, that blaming the United States for this mess, for causing this mess, and then for not uh, holding back the Israelis and indeed supporting the Israelis, uh, damages America's diplomatic position in the world and provides an opportunity uh, for them uh, to enhance Russia and China's uh, position, diplomatic position. For all the people that uh, the innocent civilians that the IDF is killing, have they really even made a dent so far into Hamas soldiers, whatever they call themselves, Hamas killers, whatever you want to call them? I think fighters is a good word. Okay, fighters, we'll use that word. Well, I've been thinking hard about this over the past week. I mean, we're six weeks into this campaign, and I think the conventional wisdom is that the Israelis are doing quite well, and uh, they're eventually going to solve the problem that they face. Uh, I think if you look carefully at the reports in the mainstream media in the United States, this is not true. Uh, the Wall Street Journal just had a big piece that said that out of the 30,000 Hamas fighters in Gaza, the Israelis have killed 1,000. Think about that. They've killed 1,000 out of 30,000 after six weeks. That's a very small number. Furthermore, it's quite clear that they have not destroyed the tunnel network. This is not to say they haven't destroyed a few tunnels and sealed some openings to some of the tunnels, but there's no evidence they've systematically torn apart the tunnels uh, in northern Gaza. Uh, and uh, furthermore, they haven't found any of the the people who were captured by Hamas. Uh, and that was you know, a total of 240 people. They haven't found any of them. And the Wall Street Journal was reporting that the Israelis are now getting ready to head down into the southern part of Gaza to deal with Hamas down there. And you say to yourself, well, they've only killed 1,000 out of 30,000 fighters up in the north. And you would assume they started in the north because that was the main area where Hamas was located. Uh, and now they're going down into the south. And the journal reports that the IDF believes that going south is going to be even more difficult than the operation in the north. And then you start saying to yourself, what are they going to do? Are they going to bomb southern Gaza the way they bombed northern Gaza? Remember, they forced all of those civilians in northern Gaza to move to southern Gaza. So right. there are a huge number of civilians in southern Gaza. What are they going to do? Launch another punishment campaign? I don't think they can get away with that. And if they do, it will be uh, uh, an act of war that uh, um, really ends up killing massive numbers of civilians. So I think the Israelis are actually between a rock and a hard place here. I don't think they're in good shape in Gaza. And we haven't even touched on the situation inside of Israel. You want to remember, there are 200,000 displaced people inside of Israel. These are 200,000 Israelis, uh, some from the Lebanon border where Hezbollah is launching attacks and some from uh, southern Israel, where there's the problem uh, involving Gaza. So a lot of uh, displaced people, they've mobilized 350,000 troops.
And Luke Croft says in the chat, if Israel can't get Egypt to open the border, how can Israelis successfully ethnically cleanse the Palestinians out of Gaza? And the answer is they cannot. This has to be hurting the economy big time. So I think the Israelis are in a quite bad situation at this point in time, contrary to what is the conventional wisdom. How many deaths are too many deaths? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the normal answer to that would be one death. One. Uh, but I mean, the numbers here are really very high. Uh, you're starving them uh, and you're preventing uh, humanitarian aid from companies and others in southern Gaza to service the large numbers of people that have been chased down there by the bombardment up north. I understand there was a, an attack against a, a field hospital. Yeah. Who carried it out? What happened? Okay, we have a hospital, a military hospital south of Gaza City, and now we're going to have a second one in the south of Gaza. Now, the one that was uh, struck was, uh, there was there's a mosque next to the hospital, and the Israeli uh, military bombarded that mosque, and people were running because they were injured run, running to the hospital. And as our military people came out to help them, they got also hit. So we had seven injured, and now they're okay. They've been uh, taken care of. But we do not find it normal that, that all the hospitals are attacked. We do not find it normal that we're attacking civilians and, and a collective punishment. This cannot go on, Margaret. This cannot go on. She makes a very compelling argument, Professor Mearsheimer. It's impossible to disagree with. Ah, can it, can it go on? All right. As long as Israel feels that its existence is at stake, is threatened by a militarized Hamas, it will go on, right? When a nation feels that it's fighting for its very existence, it will go on and on and on. They said... Uh was a hole in the ground uh, underneath the hospital uh, that apparently was an entrance to some tunnel. But they could not provide any evidence. This was a major uh, military facility for Hamas. But anyway, if you believe that Hamas fighters are traveling in ambulances and Hamas fighters are locked up in hospitals or schools or mosques, uh, then you can justify to yourself attacking those sites. So I think it's quite clear, and lots of people who are in Gaza are saying this, that there is no safe place. Any place you go, uh, even places that are run by the United Nations, are, are liable to be attacked. The uh, Israeli economy is getting clobbered. Uh, there are 350,000 formerly productive uh, middle-class uh, workers, uh, lawyers, uh, physicians, uh, school teachers who are now in, in the reservists and fighting or training to fight, so they're not producing. Uh, there are 200,000 displaced Israelis who don't have a place to live and don't have any income. And even the Palestinian laborers who had permission to leave Gaza and come into Israel and, and do manual labor obviously can't uh, do any of that. How are Hamas's finances looking? I would just also note to you, Judge, that Israel depends very heavily on tourism. And needless to say, given the circumstances right. in Israel today, there's not a lot of tourism. So the Israeli economy over the long term is in really bad shape. I mean, this war has been going on for six weeks. And as I said before, the Wall Street Journal reports that they've only killed 1,000 out of 30,000 fighters. They still have to finish in the north. And then when they're done in the north, they're going to move to the south. Uh, this war is going to go on for a long time. And the economic problems that you described now are just going to grow exponentially over time, one would think. Uh, now, turning to... Uh, Turning to Hamas's finances, right? The Economist has a big story that says Hamas is doing very well in terms of its finances. Uh, and if anything, the situation is likely to improve. It's quite clear if you look at the Economist article uh, that the center of that financial empire that you see mentioned in the headline uh, is in Istanbul. And the Turks, in particular President Erdogan, are very sympathetic uh, to Hamas. And it's quite clear that the Turks uh, are helping. Uh, Hamas with its finances. And to be honest, the article makes it clear that Hamas doesn't even need much help. It's a very sophisticated operation at the financial level. And as you can tell, if the key financial people are located in Istanbul, it's very hard for the Israelis and for the Americans to do much to shut down uh, Hamas's finances. So in terms of the economic dimension of this war, I think Hamas is doing much better uh, than Israel is doing. Professor John Mearsheimer, on the, late in the afternoon and the day before Thanksgiving, thank you for your insight and thank you for your time. 
Um, okay, that's it for me for now. Take care. Bye-bye.